Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Hi, New Hope. Hey, I was with a group of people this past week, and we were talking about this current sermon series we're walking through called What Does That Mean? And we acknowledged how, especially in today's environment, there are just words that seem to be trigger words for people. They they put up our defenses, and we just put up walls before another word is even spoken. Such is the power of words. My job title, what I was hired to do with New Hope Church is to oversee and be the power, the, not the power, the pastor of care and justice. Can I tell you that nobody has ever once asked me about the word care in my title, but the word justice continues to bring up questions and it's always this exact question, what does that mean? I believe with so many other people that whenever possible, it's best to use words that that just don't have a lot of baggage to them. Yet there are biblical words and concepts that we best not walk away from. Words that uh, we must not allow others to commandeer in such a way that to keep the peace in our community, we just have to leave behind. These are words that, it's part of the reason we're doing this very series, as a matter of fact, because these are words that need to be re-explored. They're words that we need to just peel off the layers of confusion around and dive in and really see if we can better understand God's heart and God's instructions on these words. I mentioned to Hannah, who is a uh, pastor of spiritual formation here at New Hope, the struggle that I'm finding people are having with the word justice. And I said, Hannah, what does this mean to you, that word? And she just just rolled off the top of her tongue and tip of her tongue. And I thought her answer was really good. She just quickly said, well, to me, it means partnering with God to make the wrongs in this world right. New Hope, I just got to ask you, can we explore this together? Can we refuse to let our fear and our political leanings keep us from, from deeply hearing God's heart and God's word on this topic? And I need you to hear me from the get-go. I do not come to this as an expert. I was not hired because I was an expert, but I was hired because I want to be a learner. And I hope you do too with me. Let's learn together how the church can walk in these crazy times that we live in with a clear idea of what God's word says around this topic. So as a starting point in the conversations that I have with people who have questions around my, that word in my title, I love to direct people straight to New Hope's webpage, 
where justice is beautifully and biblically defined. So let's start there this morning. We're not going to look at all the verses that are listed, but we look, we'll look at several from our webpage and some others as well. But let's start. And this is what our website says. In the beginning, all that God created was good. The Genesis 1 story. The world was in a state of shalom. Where Adam, I'm going to do some commentary here. It's, not, it's all from our website, but I'm going to add a little bit of commentary. That the world was in a state of shalom. Adam and Eve were in a place of shared peace and harmony with each other and in their relationship with their creator. Everything was as God intended. Sin shattered shalom. Genesis 3. Shattered, that is, that is such a strong word, but it is so appropriate. It means to break suddenly and violently into pieces. Any of us who have dropped a favorite vase or, or a plate and watched it shatter into thousands of pieces or hundreds of pieces, we know full well, uh-oh, this is not going to be an easy fix when something shatters. And what do we end up doing? Usually we end up just having to sweep it into a dustbin and throw it away. Well, God didn't do that with our shattered world. In response to our sin, in response to the shattering that took place, God launched a worldwide restoration plan centered in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We list on our website some scriptures, and I've asked for three of those to be read this morning, just so that we can get a sense, a little bit, of what God's heart is on this topic. Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 6. Is not this the fast I choose, to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, your gloom be like the midday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, 
He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, our webpage continues. The work of Jesus makes things right in our hearts. Followers of Jesus are called, just like Hannah said, to partner with God to make the wrongs right in our world. And we do this through acts of justice, which are steps towards kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If you can't imagine that something's going to be part of heaven, if you can't imagine that there's going to be hunger and poverty and abuse and racism and oppression, you can be assured that the people of God are to work of that not being part of earth either. What is it that we pray? We pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, our webpage wraps up with this. It says, we seek to serve those who are the most vulnerable. And that we are fall in that uh, we follow Jesus's teaching in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We also take note of his brother James's words that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to care for orphans and widows in their distress. I don't know about you, but I, last February, during the ice storm, found myself pretty distressed. We were without electricity in our home for seven days. We had just moved into that home a couple of months before and had just demoed the kitchen. And that, that ice storm came into our lives and we got really, really cold and lost all our food. We had no way to cook, no way to stay warm. And we just realized how fast life can get vulnerable. And we probably all during that storm considered those who are not just in a temporary situation like that, but who just are without shelter of any kind. My, my personal short experience with vulnerability however, defined some things for me about people in distress. I appreciated when people made offers, friends knew that, what, your electricity is still out? Oh, we got ours back within two hours. We got ours back in three days. And when they discovered that we without, I appreciated the offers to bring over a hot meal or did, hey, what do you need? Do you need some more blankets? And while I appreciated that, what I really wanted was somebody to help me do what I could not do for myself. And that was get my power turned back on to help me change my situation rather than simply sustain me in my situation. Often people need both. 
They need to be sustained in a situation, but they also need to have somebody walk alongside them and help them do what they cannot do for themselves. I think the church stops short, or and organizations and anybody working with the distressed, I think we stop short if we do not, if we stop short when we simply sustain people in a bad situation rather than helping them get out of a bad situation if they would choose to. Several of our staff met back in, I think it was February and March, for what we call Dream Day two dream days, and we we got together with a coach and we just walked through our whole ministry area of justice and justice partners. Our coach helped us to figure out what do we value most? What do we believe the scriptures value most when it comes to people who have need in our world, people who are in pain and in suffering? And our number one value ended up being that we agreed on, we agreed on five top values out of 20, and the top one was that we wanted to work with people, partner with people who were serving the most vulnerable in our world. Emily and I then took that staff input, and that was John and Mike and Hannah and Emily and I and Leroy and Nathan and Dan Williams from our elder board. And we took all of that input gleaned and we began to walk through all of our justice relationships, our justice partners of our two congregations merging. And can I just take a moment and say, we were blown away how many justice partners we have. So kudos to New Hope and to Mount Scott. We have partnered with and supported a large number of justice partners through the decades. This has been our heartbeat. And then Emily and I worked to define and refine our partnerships with folks committed to serving the most vulnerable, committed to engaging us as partners in this work, and committed to developing a plan for a better way forward for people. Jesus told a crowd one day who it was that they really cared for when they were caring for the distressed. It was him. He told them this about the end of time. He said, when the Son of Man returns in glory, meaning himself with all of his angels, there will be a moment where he will separate out the sheep from the goats. And what separates the sheep, according to Jesus, and I hope we believe in what Jesus teaches, he said, what separates the goats from the sheep centers on their treatment of the vulnerable. And to the sheep, he says, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Come. And then turn to the goats, those who had claimed the name of Jesus, but had done none of these things for the vulnerable. And he said, who are you? Or in more biblical language, he said, depart from me, for I never knew you. Let's pray. Our loving Father, I just want to pause in the middle of this moment 
and pray that you would take away our fears, that you would dismantle our human errors and the divisions that we allow to arise, that you would remove the baggage that accompanies this word justice in today's world. Help us as the church, as believers, to hear from you, to be directed by you, and empowered by your spirit to partner with you to repair what sin has shattered. Amen. In 1995, World Vision partnered with the American Bible Society to put out the Poverty and Justice Bible. It has very little commentary. It is simply the Word of God with passages highlighted in orange that reveal God's heart for the disenfranchised, for the oppressed, for the widow, for the orphan, for those suffering and highlighted the instructions for God's people of how we are to heal a broken world. There were over 2,000 passages highlighted. I share all of that up to this point. Everything I've shared is to help us understand that justice is such a strong biblical concept. A word that is often paired with justice, especially all through the Old Testament, is the word righteousness. And that word, too, is that word's just kind of fallen out of vogue. It just, it isn't popular to use anymore. So we have justice that's become a lightning rod word, so we want to stay away from that. And then we have righteousness that I think because it means to some people self-righteousness, we just quit using it altogether. Both of these concepts, and by the way, they're very interchangeable in the Hebrew language. Both of these concepts need to be reclaimed in a biblical sense. Both in Hebrew and Greek, they are interchangeable, and they both carry the connotation of right relationship. So right relationship with God is what righteousness is, and right relationship with others is what justice is. They are intertwined. We can't have one without the other. Right relationship with God, right relationship with others, and justice is about acting, behaving, and living out of those right relationships. Timothy Keller, a very trusted pastor in America, he he's retired now, but for I think 25 years, maybe even 30, was the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. He wrote a book back around 2010, I believe, entitled Generous Justice. I trust him because he not only did deep study in in his education and in the Bible around this topic, he led thousands through the decades into works of justice in New York City and beyond. He says there are two overarching themes of scripture that really should shape the church in our thoughts around justice. The first, he says, we find in creation, Genesis 1, same place our website starts, Genesis 1, and he says, what is right there at the very beginning that should shape us is the Imago Dei, that the image of God has been placed in every person. And the second, and we're going to talk about each of these in a minute, but the second overarching theme 
is what John talked about last week. It's the grace of God in redemption. So church, finding, finding our why in today's world about why we should pursue justice is so very critical and it's just very important. We need to ask ourselves, is justice just the cool thing? Is it the end thing of our times? And so we're on board with it. Is, is that our why? Is it part of our political party's mantra? And so that's why we champion justice. Or is it the push of the younger generation? And, and the church is panicked all the time that we are losing our young. And so that happens to be a hot button in younger generations. And so the church, should, is that a good why? Should we say, get on the justice bus because we're going to lose our youth if we don't? I think if we're honest, and we probably ought to always be honest, especially with ourselves and with God, I think we'd have to say there's probably a smattering of all of those things in the church's reawakening to justice. But every one of those whys that I've just mentioned is so short-sighted and so distorted. But God's call for justice is a beautiful restorative call to the return to shalom and flourishing for our whole world. Genesis 1, so God created man, male and female, in his image, and he called it very, very good. This is literally our starting place. It is literally the foundation of our why when it comes to justice that every person has been created in the image of God. An image holder carries with it the idea of a work of art or a great craftsmanship. It can also mean to resemble, as in a, a, parent, a child that, that resembles somebody in the family. Our oldest son, Eric, just kind of just took me by surprise and it cracks me up because he's hardly ever spent around much time around a beloved cousin of mine, but he is so clearly cut from the very same cloth. He shares that family image. They have the same mannerisms. They stand the same, same uh, way of talking. They both have the same athletic giftedness. In the most broken life, there is still the image of God, the resemblance of the divine in every human being. Every life sacred, every life valuable. That's our why, that's our first why. The drunken man sleeping on the sidewalk, the hungry child going hungry, the senator with power, impoverished in a completely different way than the first two. All of them carry within them the sacred image of our God. When God was making covenant with Noah, God said, recorded in Genesis 9, that he would reckon, he would require a reckoning for every human life, for in his own image he had created humanity. Every life sacred, every life valuable. It is why it matters the increase of shootings in our very own city, 
lives being lost, and every one of them sacred, every one of them valuable to God. Certainly, we think of one of our very own who was taken in a shooting this May, the granddaughter of Joe and Chris. And it matters to God. And anything that matters to God certainly surely matters to God's people. Every life sacred. James takes this so seriously that he instructs that we be careful even with our tongues, with the words that we speak about another person. Not only are we not to take someone's life, not only are we to care about another situations, we are not to use our tongues uh, to curse them. James 3 says, Our tongues sometimes praise our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. Surely, my brothers and sisters, he writes, this is not right. We are not to bless the Lord our God and curse those made in his very likeness. Every life sacred, every life one of value. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. This does not mean that we're to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is, in fact, the merriest kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Every life sacred, every life valuable. The second biblical motivation for us to do justice is what John spoke on last week, that every person, including every one of us, is saved by grace and grace alone. I appreciated John's honest look at what he called grace with strings attached. Of course, a gift of that magnitude, a gift where God's son comes on our behalf and pays a debt that we absolutely could not pay, calls for a response. If you miss that message and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, isn't grace free? Yes, it is. But it's not cheap, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. So go, go to the website and listen to that message. If you disagree with anything there, you can talk to John about it. John also pointed out that God's grace is not just a New Testament concept, but it has been there from the very beginning in everything God does with people. Exodus is the story of a people group who became racial outsiders, poor and oppressed when the powers of Egypt began to fear their number and enslave them. And after God set them free, God said through, to them through Moses, he said, Israel, you were liberated by me. You did not accomplish it. I performed it for you by my grace. Now do the same for others. Untie the yoke Unlock the shackles, feed and clothe them as I did for you. God's grace at work and his call on his people for a reciprocal gift given to others. 
We could look at so many different passages in the New Testament to look at God's stunning rescue through redemption of Jesus on the cross. But Philippians 2 is just one of the, one of the many that came to mind. And it's a, it's a chapter that simply begs the question, are you any different? Am I any different because of what Jesus Christ did for us? If so, Paul writes, then don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others, but be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. And then he describes what that attitude in Christ looks like. Christ did not consider equality with God, did not consider his divine privileges something to be grasped and clung to, but he gave them up in order to walk with us in our poverty and in our dire straits as human beings who could not find a way out of the brokenness. To raise us up, to forgive us, and to restore us as dig and to restore our dignity as image bearers of God. It was a big deal what Jesus did. God's grace is a big deal. It's as costly of grace, it's a, is as costly as the world has ever seen. Most scholars over the centuries understood and taught that God's blessing and salvation come to those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy. I thought that was interesting. To know to, it comes to those, a, a changed life comes to those who clearly and deeply acknowledge our indebtedness to God's grace. Keller agrees with those scholars. He writes, when we really grasp our spiritual poverty and what God did in response, we will forevermore identify with the poor and the needy, knowing that was us and still would be without divine sacrifice. He says that his experience as a pastor has been that those who are, and this was an interesting turn to me, middle class in spirit, in other words, seeing ourselves as, well, we're kind of, we're not really that bad, but we're, we're, we may not be really that good, but we're not that bad, just kind of middle class spiritually. He says that group tends to be indifferent to the poor. But people who grasp the gospel of grace find their hearts gravitating toward the materially and spiritually poor. The attitude of, I won't help you because you got yourself into that mess is unthinkable for anybody who knows about the grace of God. What if he had said, you got yourselves into it, you get yourselves out. Thank the Lord he didn't. Every person sacred, every person valuable, every person saved by grace and grace alone. Once at this altar of our souls and every day after that. It is the biblical why, the image of God and the grace of God that will actually sustain us in our justice work when we are really more comfortable or want to just give up because it is hard 
work. Those are the things that will sustain us, that will keep us going, to know the biblical story that every person is sacred and every person is saved by grace. And those two whys will compel us to not accept the way things are, which I do a lot, but will encourage us to work for the way things ought to be. Well, John promised that we would look at original languages for each of our words in this series. The Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. And as we see in Micah 6.8, it always carries with it the concept of doing, of behavior, of action. We're told to, to love mercy, but to do justice. And justice takes practical steps to ensure fairness. The word righteous, as I mentioned, is often paired with justice, is the word zedekeh. And one respected Old Testament scholar who studied both of these words in the Old Testament writes what his conclusion of these two words and all the teachings surrounding them. He said, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves for advantage of the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Deuteronomy gave lots of practical steps to the Israelites to practice justice in their day. Here's one of my favorites. It was written, when you are harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. It's like a, a grain of, of wheat, you know, a stalk of wheat. Don't go pick every one of those up because it goes on, because it is for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. In other words, they were not to consume all the goods that God made available. And this instruction also recognizes the dignities and the abilities of the poor to work and provide for themselves if landowners and economic powers that be will allow them to do so. When the rich gobble up every possible resource, it's unjust. When governments give more incentive to not work than to work, the poor suffer long-term consequences and dignity is lost. Today, obviously, we can draw practical steps from these biblical principles, things we can do personally, such as not use up all the resources that God makes available to us. A very practical thing is to be able to, to give of our resources. We can tithe or give to, to a church or to an organization that helps those in distress. Just so you know, New Hope puts in our budget significant help for those in distress around our globe. We can also recognize out in the world when current ruling powers and authorities have systems in place that are unjust and oppressive, systems that were put into place with evil intent from the get-go, such as redlining, or systems that perhaps were begun with good intent, but are now clearly broken. We must give voice to injustice in our world. In closing, I just want to look at one more Old Testament person. He was called righteous and just, and that is Job. 
We often go to that book for very different reasons, but in Job's final defense of his life before God and all who were judging him, he says this, I delivered the poor who cried and the orphan who had no helper. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy and everything I did was honest above board. Righteousness covered me like a robe and I wore justice like a turban. God justified Job in the end of that drama. And Job understood that every life was sacred. And he understood that everything he had been given in life was by the grace of his creator. John has been talking about creating a Tove culture, a culture of goodness, since I first met him over a year ago. His professor, Scott McKnight, writes, a Tove culture has an instinct for doing the right thing. Toxic cultures find ways to avoid doing the right thing. Can I give you an assignment today? I know this is a lot to take in, and, and maybe there's even a little bit of tension in you as you listen to these words and you want to think deeper about them, and I encourage you to do so. But as a way to grab a hold of the biblical message and contemplate it this week, would you write on a 3 by 5 card and put it up on your refrigerator or on your mirror, whichever you visit more often, no judgment, just wherever you think you go to really often, and just write these two concepts down. Every life sacred, every life valuable, every life saved by grace alone. Thank you.